International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award-winning screenwriter and director Bart Gavigan. Lesson 12 helps for story structure. What you have to understand about emotion, about uh, the audience is that you are going to move them and that, you, that you're going to move them progressively ever deeper, ever more powerfully during your film. It's not that you couldn't technically do it. It's not that you couldn't build climax after climax after climax, turn the film right, turn it left. It's not that you couldn't be such a good dynamic storyteller that you couldn't do this. The problem is that craft serves the audience and the audience couldn't bear it. And the rule you have to remember, okay, is that the higher you're going to take them, you have to take them down. Uh, so after a peak, you take them down before you take them up to the next peak. So instead of going straight up, you, you in a sense, let them breathe. You take them down. And that's what they were doing in, in Ordinary People. That's what they were doing in Kramer versus Kramer. They were letting the audience breathe. It was, it was a very, it's almost like a crude way of taking them down a little bit before they take them up again, okay? It's an understanding of where the audience live and breathe. And obviously, uh, you have a conflict here because, as I said, as, as, the, as, the, um, as the film moves towards its climax, as, it, as you move through the film, the pace of the film picks up, okay? The pace picks up. And um, on the other hand, if you're going to take them up very high at the end to huge climaxes, okay, it's slightly like a salmon leaping, okay? A salmon can only leap according to the amount of water below it. I'm sure you all knew that. <laughs> so the audience can only leap according to the amount of emotional release you've given them. Do you understand? That's if you're expecting to leap yet again, having had them just leap 10 seconds before, you're deceived. You actually need to let the audience down. And if you're going to make them have a big leap, you have to somehow create emotional water underneath them, whereby they can do this leap for you. And you are going to make them leap. Ordinary people is exactly the same. Okay. Uh, they, you, you, by about the second minute in, you come home and you have a shot where the car, they come back from the play, the, the car is going to be put in the garage and you sort of see the Illinois plates on the car. Now the rule is this, any scene that you don't need in your film, you take out. So as a writer, you look at that scene and say, this is rubbish. This does not advance the plot, this does not advance character, we don't need to know they live in Illinois. You know, this goes. This scene, and why is it in there? It's a breather, okay? It's a breather. You're having to concentrate very hard for those first two minutes, and suddenly you're going to go into a very important scene where he, we're going to find him talking to his son in a particular way, and suddenly find that the wife's personality has totally changed because he's gone to talk to his son, okay? Do you see? And so he puts this little breather scene in. Again, uh, a, a few minutes later, after the, the, the boy's going to school with his mates and so on, you have another breather scene. You have a scene where he's outside the school, and it only lasts like six, seven seconds. It's a sort of wide shot. And it's, it's technically rubbish. You know, it's juvenile. It's infantile. 
As a writer, as a director, you say, second rate, you know, meaningless. Get rid of it. Let's get him right into the school. Let's cut. Let's move this film along. Let's be adult here, except for one thing. The audience emotionally are having to absorb tons of information. They need breathers. This is a breath of fresh air scene. This is, you, you see. Because what's going to happen in your film is conflict is going to be a rising spiral, okay? Many people give many images for this. One image would be uh, if you're going to climb Mount Everest. Act one is like you, it's, it's not easy act one. You have to reach base camp and you have to trek across the Himalayas and you have to carry stuff on your back and it's, it's not pleasant. But you're in the foothills, really. Act two is far more difficult. You're crossing ice fields, danger. Uh, people get killed all the time. And in act two, in theater traditionally, but also in film, people die all the time in act two. If you watch, uh, like, author, author, it's a joke. You know, like, the prob we've got problems in act two. It's, it's like a cliche in scripts, or you'll always have people wandering around saying, we can't fix the problem in act two. Okay. Act two is the traditional metaphor, is it the desert that's called act two? And there's a reason for that, okay? There's a reason for that. And the reason is this, that uh, act two demands a grasp of structure. Act one, you can have a brilliant idea for a film, brilliant character, put them together, and you can start to move down the road in act one, okay? And you may even know how it ends. You may have a brilliant idea for the ending and so on. But how are you going to get that? Act two, can be, act two can be 60 minutes long. And in act two, what you're going to have is development, complication, and so on. And to achieve that in a rising spiral for 60 minutes is no small task, unless you know structure. And what's actually going to get you through act two, we're going to look at later, is, 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 are your subplots. Subplots are the meat and drink of Act Two. Uh, of course, your main plot's going to continue, but unless you are gifted and understand subplot, you're going to die in the desert of Act Two, okay? especially if you're trying to do a feature. And um, this structure applies to smaller things, but once you, once you go beyond a certain length <coughs> in a piece of work, in a piece of visual media, you start to hit uh, complications. In other words, once you once, for example, you go over 50 minutes in anything that is visual media, you better know what you're doing, okay? Because, like it or not, you've just entered a whole different battlefield. Just as once you move from 30 to 50 minutes, you've entered a new battlefield. And the reason is to do with reversals to the hero's journey and audience expectation and the level of rising conflict, okay? So... Uh, we've already seen this uh, key word in this is the word we had a look at, it seems, an age ago. The word called risk. Okay? Risk. So remember we talked about down the front of your film? The hero will take the, the most conservative action to get what he wants. He will take the the least line of resistance to get what he wants, okay? And so what you have in your film or how conflict is created, okay, is that you have a rising spiral of risk. Is the hero, to get what he wants, has to risk more and more. You know, by, by the beginning of the film, uh, 
by the beginning of Kramer versus Kramer, to get what he wants, he, he, he's, he's risking his job. Okay? By the, by, the, by the end of the film, what's, it, what's in jeopardy is his whole being, his moral being, um, and his whole life. Okay? So the risk increases. Okay? In ordinary people, the risk increases. The price by the end of uh, ordinary people is um, in order for this boy to live, to survive, uh, what's put in the melting pot is the family, is this sick family. The sickness of the family is the price. And in the end, the breakup of the family is the price. Um, and we'll talk about that, how that could be. So the risk in <coughs> increases. Okay? Uh, in ordinary people, we'll see, as we'll see, uh, the risk he's looking at, okay, is is the risk of being loved by his mother. That's what he's looking at, okay? And we'll see how he spells that out. Ordinary people is all about subtext. So when he goes to see the doctor, Dr. Berger, what Berger says, uh, they have a chat, and he, and he says, well, why are you here? And he says, I want to be more in control. I want to be more in control. And the audience, who are smart, immediately know what he's saying. You, you may think, you don't know. When I say it to you, you say, well, I didn't get that. You did, and you subconsciously understood. Because what you've seen is who's the most controlling person in this film? The mother. So when the little boy, not little boy, but the little boy in him, the wounded little boy in him says, I want to be more in control, he's saying, I want to please mother, because if mother, I please mother, she'll love me. Okay? The audience get it, you know? So what's, in, what's at risk for him is, is, is mother, the love of his mother. By the end, what's at risk for him is far greater than that, you know, in order to... So, the risk, the rising spiral of risk. Um, some people talk about it as a river. You know, it's, it's sort of like a river where you start to go downstream and it's, you hit little trees and branches in the river and so on, and then you hit rapids, and finally you hit a 60 or 100-foot waterfall so that, by Act 3. So the, these are... These are sort of images that people use that's, um, for this. Uh, a teacher, one of the teachers uh, I mentioned, Ron Supper, um, he has a friend who's a writer, and he color a, lo a lot of writers do this. They color code their scripts. And, and how they do it is, is um, in the past, they used to have three by five cards, and they would have the bullet line of every scene written on the card, the essence of that scene written on the card. And they'd color code it for comedy, for laughter, for drama, um, for exposition, so that they could lay these on the floor, like act one's laid on the floor, act two, and they could just look at them and say, gosh, there's no, there's no laughter in act two for 35 minutes. So you know, you know, they could just look at it. So nowadays, you'd probably do it on computer. You'd just be able to glance at your computer, and at a glance, you'd actually see if there's a good balance in your film if there's variety in your film. And it's not that you would necessarily go and put comedy in, but you'd at least answer the question. <coughs> it's like Benton dealing with his nine minutes in and there's only interpersonal conflict. It doesn't mean to say he's going to deal with that by putting in conflict on all three levels, which is actually what he does. But he could have done something else. But if he hadn't had that question, that's what dooms you. That's, what, that's where you fail if you don't even know there's a question here. So if you don't color code your script, say it's fine, it doesn't matter. It just means that you, you miss an opportunity maybe to actually see, to have a, a look at a glance, 
what is the balance of your script or your film? It, it doesn't matter if you do. Anyway, Ron Server was saying this friend, um, he, has a, he has color, he has four colors on the line of risk and choice and action um, of conflict, okay, on, on, along this line. He has four colors. He has white, pink, orange, and red. And he is saying that it's always a joke because by the time you get to act three, it's all red. <laughs> and that's how it should be. Do you understand? In other words, the conflict should be red hot. It should be, there's no room anymore for white or, <laughs> yeah. okay. We talked about turning the story. This great term, turning the story. Um, and how every scene, in a sense, should turn the story. It should, it should progress the story of the hero's want. If it does not serve your story, the scene comes out, no matter how brilliant it is, OK? It doesn't matter if it's well-written, if it's funny. If it does not serve the hero and his story, it comes out. That's its main function in your film. The only time when that's not true is before the story begins. Every other story structurist in the world thinks there's only one inciting incident in film, so I disagree. <laughs> and, and I'll explain what I mean, okay? And do you remember inciting incident is the moment your film begins? I think there are two, and they're, they're joined together. Uh, they're not separated, like they're the two sides of, of how your story starts. And, and this is why I think it, and this is how it applies. In ordinary people, the whole way the beginning set up, by the way, that beginning was not in the, in the, uh, the script. You know, that very elegiac, slightly melancholic, with Packerbell's cannon going through it, the empty bandstand, the falling leaves, the empty road. Um, what that mood is saying to you is saying there is a definite mood in this film. Do you agree? And other says, that, that right down the front, they're saying this is autumn. Summer's over, you see. Uh, and in a sense, what the subtext of that is, is the story. You're actually in the middle of a story. You don't know it yet, but actually the story began some time ago. And even though this is the beginning of the film, you are already in the middle of a story that is slightly sad. There's a, there's a, there's a definite quality of melancholy in, that, in, uh, in those images. So empty bandstands and fallen leaves, they, they communicate to an audience, you know? They communicate a mood. And so they're very deliberately put there. And it's true. The story began when the, the, the first part of the insight and incident is the moment his brother died. That's when this story began. Now, you could, you could say it actually began before that in terms of the family dynamics. But in terms of story, that's, where, that's like the first part of the inciting incident, OK? But the other part, the, the part where traditionally the story begins in this film, is when he goes to see the psychiatrist. That's the inciting incident. Up till then, there is no story. He's, he's, uh, in terms of, yes, there's been an incident, the first part of the inciting incident. But the moment he goes to the psychiatrist, he is plunged on a journey. In other words, the story does not begin until the hero, uh, something happens that starts the journey for the hero. His journey doesn't begin until he meets that man. His want, from the moment he meets that man, up to the moment he meets that man, his desire is what? What's his goal? Hmm? 
Yeah, it's, it's, uh, but, but if you were to say like a word that sums up, uh, he wants to survive, okay? That's what, after he meets this man, he wants to live. This man, <laughs> this man basically challenges his view of survival, and he challenges it, and this is subtext, he challenges it brilliantly, he says all this, and he says, well, actually, I'm not too big on control. I'm not into survival. I'm into life, you know? Okay? And from that moment, the child in this wounded man says, I want life. That's what I want. And, that's the, and, and so the whole risk of life starts for him, okay? A terrible risk in a way that the survival was never going to be, okay? The journey has begun. The journey that began when his brother died has now begun really. It's the same in Rain Man. You have two sides to the inciting incident, to the beginning of the story. The first one is the will. When he hears about this will, uh, he's interested, he wants to find out about the will, and so on. It's, it's like the beginning of what I call the general story. Suddenly he was going along, and now suddenly an event has come into his life that, in a general sense, has piqued his interest, has drawn him into a situation. Life is not going to be the same. His father's made a will. Do you, do you see? But the story does not begin until he meets Raymond. Because what is the story? What is his want? His want is to kidnap Raymond, take him across America, and get his one and a half million dollars. It's very, very precise. Not three million, not 500,000. He wants a million and a half dollars, which is his share of the money. And to do that, he has to kidnap his brother and take him across America. So the journey begins, okay, from at the point where he meets Raymond, kidnaps him. That's the, the, the journey beginning. But it really began from the moment he heard about the will. It began in a general. So think of the inciting incident. Usually as there's a general part to the beginning of your story, and then there's a very specific incident that and I, I find this very helpful if you think that way. I don't find it helpful at all if you just think there's one incident, uh, because usually there's two, a general and a specific. Okay. Before your story begins, that time is yours, okay? Once your story begins, you are serving the story. It is actually dictating to you uh, time. And you are controlling the story through craft and inspiration and perspiration, but basically, you no longer have the luxury of saying, I'm going to have a nice scene in here that uh, is going to have some laughter in. No, it's not going to help the story, but you know, I like it, and it's, it's going to loosen people up and so on. You no longer have that luxury. It's not that you don't have a scene that's really funny, but that scene has now to fulfill many purposes, including serving and pushing the story forward. So before that happens, you can set the scene, you can build character, without actually having to drive the story forward. So these moments are very precious to you as a writer. Uh, there are two ways of thinking about conflict, this whole process of the structure of risk and conflict. Some people think of it as your task is to complicate the life of your hero. They, they use phrases quite right, like uh, make it difficult for your hero. Never make it easy for him. Make it increasingly difficult, okay? And if that's helpful to you, that's good, because that's the traditional approach. Um, I think there's another approach which is the same. They amount to the same thing. It's just a different way of looking. And that is that 
far from complicating the film in a sense, if you find the story, the complications are already in it, logically. In other words, it's almost like sculpting, where you can see what's in this block of stone. And your task is to actually simplify, is to give order to the story, because the complications are, are intrinsically in the story. So, for example, uh, if you take ordinary people, there's a certain sense, if you actually know that family, if you know what's happened, if you know the dynamic, if you know that this boy has suddenly met this Dr. Berger, okay, right there in the story are all the complications that you're going to discover. It's almost like you don't have to uh, sit making up complications. You have to find the complications that are true in that story. And it's the same thing. It, it, it's two ways of looking at it. It's just more helpful for some people. And, and also, there's just a slight sense that if you think like that, you never quite lose the grasp of reality. You never quite lose believability in your stories. They'll always be very incarnate, very powerful, because you've actually pursued relentlessly the logic within the situation. Of course, if you come across a brilliant reversal, you're not going to sit there saying, oh, I'm not going to use this. Of course you're going to use it. The, the thing I've mentioned before, but I may repeat this again and again, is the importance of what opens up in the story as you take the hero through these reversals, this turning the story to the right, to the left, to the positive, to the negative, where he hopes, where he fears, where he learns things, where the audience learns things, where he goes through many experiences maybe of, of self-revelation, of, uh, which are both negative and positive. In other words, he finds out bad things about himself, good things about himself. As uh, under pressure, he, he, he grows and he changes and so on. Thank you. And um, the great thing that you're playing for is remember that values are at the heart of drama. The great thing that's in play here, I would say, if you want to be a great writer, is you're no longer just interested in dramatic the gap being dramatic. In other words, you're no longer just interested in making this story as powerful as possible, as dramatic as possible, and in these gaps, astonishing the audience, surprising, delighting the audience as the gap opens up in the story of the hero. Now, you understand when I say the gap, the gap means the re every time he... It's a process of irony. In other words, what the gap is, uh, it's not in theater you'd call it a process of irony, whereby the hero reaches out his hand to pick the apple and just as he does it he's blocked and he has to go around the wall and go forward again and then he's blocked and he has to go around and go forward again and he's blocked and what it happens in a sense is that just as in the middle of living his life life jumps up and whacks him on the head and knocks him on the floor it's a process of irony and then the process of irony continues because as he's lying on the floor and looks up the stars he sees them in a new way that's going to change his life okay so the, the worst thing becomes the best thing. So the defeat actually becomes a victory. So the victory actually becomes a defeat. Or in Witness, where uh, we have a, a slightly mythic element to the story, whereby uh, he is physically wounded in order to have revealed to him his emotional wound and to deal with that. So the whole character of John Book, it's a, it's a classic mythic story whereby uh, the wounded hero, it's called, okay, in myth, whereby the hero is wounded, uh, but, but his physical wound actually becomes the gateway for maturity, for growing up.
okay, and dealing with the wound that's always been in him, the inner wound. Okay. So what you're going for, what you're playing for is um, uh, are, are the, these huge stakes of, of in this gap opening up values to the audience. Now this audience, instead of just perceiving drama and conflict, is actually experiencing a new way of looking at life, a new way of valuing life, a new series of values on life. And if you can achieve that, then uh, in terms of your calling, you're going to achieve something wonderful on whatever level of life God has called you to, to work. 